Um, we've been going through a series on community for the past six times that I've taught, and now we're going to move back into what we typically do as a church, and that is teaching what's called expositorily through books of the Bible. And uh, before we dug into this whole issue of community, which I think is super important, we were looking at the book of Exodus, and before that, we were looking at the book of First John, and now we're going to go back to the New Testament, not to an epistle or a letter of the New Testament, but to a gospel in the New Testament. And uh, why a gospel? Um, because I think it's just really, really important for us to regularly focus in on Jesus and who he is. Um, if you read kind of early church literature, the gospels were the thing that the early church read from most, preached from most, wrote about most. The gospels were what the early church focused on in a significant way. Some people have said the early church was a red letter church. And if you know, if you're one of those Bibles that have the words of Jesus in red, it's like that's, they really focused in on that. And I think it's important for us to regularly do that as well. Um, John says an amazing thing in John 17, 3, that this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So if eternal life consists of a relationship with God and through Jesus Christ, his son and the Holy Spirit, if that's what eternal life is, to me it's really significant that we get to know this Jesus. In John 14, uh, Jesus is having a discussion with his disciples and, and Philip asks Jesus, he says, show us the Father. And Jesus says to Philip, Philip, have I been with you so long? Don't you realize that if you have seen me, you have seen the Father? And in the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, it says, God spoke through the prophets in various ways and manners in the Old Testament, but now he has spoken supremely, basically through his Son, through Jesus Christ, in these last days, that in essence we had all of that Old Testament revelation, and it's good, but now the supreme revelation is through Jesus Christ. John says the same thing in his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, the communication, the revelation of God, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and that Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only Son. And we were seeing in Exodus, and Jamie mentioned this last week, when, when Moses went up there and said, I want to see your glory, and, and God says, you're not going to see my glory, you're going to see my goodness pass by. But the amazing thing in, in John's gospel, he says, you can Behold the glory of God. And how we see that glory now is, is in Jesus Christ. In Colossians 2.9, Paul says, In Jesus Christ, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And I think we, we need this God revealed to us in bodily form because sometimes it's a it's a challenge because we think of God and it's kind of a huge, big, abstract concept sometimes. And I think we all have baggage that we bring in with that idea of, of God. And often we say Jesus is exactly like God, which is true. But I want us to rework that sentence a little bit as we go through Matthew's gospel and flip that around and say God is exactly like Jesus. Because though those sound the same, I think it's, for me, a little bit easier to grasp who this God of the universe is as I see him enfleshed in Jesus Christ. 
to understand as we look at the Old Testament, sometimes God is coming down with power and other times he's not. And it's like, what is God? How does he relate to people? How does he relate to me in the midst of my struggles? And then in the New Testament, we have the glory of God revealed in this enfleshed Jesus Christ. And it's like, that's how God treats people that blow it. That's how he relates to other people. This is what he's about and what he wants primarily to communicate with us. So as we go through this gospel, my invitation to you is kind of come and see Jesus. Observe him. And again, as we go through, some of these stories are so familiar. We're going to look at the Christmas story. The, you know, we've heard that a billion times if we've been raised in the church and little kids dressed up as lambs and seven-year-old shepherds, you know. And it's just, yeah, that's sweet. It's, but it's just so familiar to us that I think sometimes it loses the impact of what is really being talked about here. And so I want us to try and take a step back and seek to look at Jesus with fresh eyes. As we go through this gospel to say, Jesus, communicate who God is to me through who you are in this gospel. We'll be in this gospel probably for a while. Matthew is the longest of the gospels. And in the early church, Matthew was the most popular of the gospels as well. Um, the gospel itself is anonymous. It doesn't say anything in here that Matthew wrote it, but from the earliest times in the church, I think the first quote is in AD 90, a guy named Papias who attributed this gospel to Matthew, the tax collector, and then throughout the history of the church, it's been attributed to Matthew, the tax collector, the traitor, the one that scammed off a lot of money from his people, and then God got a hold of his heart and his life and transformed him. This gospel is the most Jewish of the gospels. You'll see often in this gospel, Matthew will say, and this is how this was fulfilled. And he will quote an Old Testament passage, tying Jesus into, this is the history of our Jewish people and Jesus is now come to fulfill that history. That's a theme that you find over and over in the gospel of Matthew. So I want to invite you guys on a journey to, to see Jesus. Like Bill was talking about this morning, say, come and, come and see Jesus. I don't want you to see me. I'm, I'm just, no, I want you to see Jesus. And I want you in seeing Jesus to recognize you're seeing God. Because I think that really helps us. We as Christians talk, well, I have a personal relationship with God, but sometimes that's really hard to get our hands around. But I think, okay, it's a lot easier for me to grasp a personal relationship with Jesus than a personal relationship with God the Father kind of out there. So are you guys up for that journey? To dig in and really see Jesus as he is. And as we start this gospel this morning, Matthew starts out where all good stories start out with a genealogy. Just really right into it, it's like, wow, I'm excited. Yeah, this is the father of the father. It's like, so what in the world is he doing? And I'm not going to go and I'm not going to read through all the names in this genealogy. Say, thank you, Brett. You're welcome. But the reality is Matthew starts out with a genealogy. And for us, that doesn't mean much. But for a Jewish person, this would be really, really significant. He starts out, and many of your translations will say, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
Literally how this begins is the book of Genesis of Jesus Christ. And later on in verse 18 of chapter 1, it says this, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. It's the same word, the genesis of Jesus Christ took place in the same way. So what is Matthew doing here? I think he's intentionally, if you read, and a Jew would read the book of Genesis of Jesus Christ, what they're taking right back to, right? The book of Genesis. And the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures were translated by a group of people 150 years or so before Christ. And this wording here is the exact same wording of Genesis 12, 2-4, where it says the book of Genesis or the origin of the created world, basically. So I think what Matthew's doing, and he's bringing us back to the beginning, and he's intentionally getting us to think about Genesis, about beginnings, right? This is the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ, the origins of Jesus Christ. So there's something really new, a new creative act that's going on here. We also see later when Mary gets pregnant, she becomes pregnant, what, by the Holy Spirit, do you ever remember another time where there was something lifeless and empty and void where the Holy Spirit was involved in bringing life there? So I think Matthew is intentionally bringing his Jewish readers back to, oh, I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking about new beginnings and who this Jesus is, but also tying it into this whole history of the Hebrew people. In Matthew 13, I think it's verse 52, it talks about a, a good teacher in the kingdom. He brings out treasures both new and old. And I think what Matthew's doing from the start here is there's something really new happening here. This is a new creation. In Romans 5, Paul gives this analogy of the, the second Adam, the new Adam that's coming. There was Adam, he blew it for everybody, but there's a new Adam that come. And that's Jesus Christ. And I think in one sense, Matthew's tying that in. He's tying it into the beginning. This is a new creation event, but it's not just a new creation event. It's tied into all of this previous history that has come before, tying it in with the Old Testament. And throughout this genealogy, we'll, we'll see certain things focused on. The first thing right away, it says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, in a normal sense, you would read that and should say the son of Abraham, the son of David, right? But he fronts the son of David. And in the genealogy, as you read through, there's a lot of kings in the genealogy, but the only king that says he's a king is King David. So you know Matthew, right from the start, is saying it's significant to talk about Jesus being the son of David, why is that significant? Because the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, and that's a word that appears over and over in this genealogy in first chapter as well. This anointed king is coming. He's going to be the son of David, or as the hymn writer said, great David's greater son. He's coming on the scene, and I want you all to recognize that from the get-go, that there is this new thing that God is doing, this new creative act, but also it's tied in with the whole history of God's chosen people. And if you know the history of God's chosen people, it's not all that beautiful, right? The Old Testament is, is full of kind of hopeful beginnings that very soon after the hopeful beginning end in tragic failure, right? 
You got Adam and Eve, and it starts all the way back then. Yeah, and they're in this perfect place, perfect environment. Oh, miserable failure, right? It's like, okay, then we'll start with Noah again. Yeah, things are going, oh, that fails. And it's like, okay, we'll call this people Abraham's people, and we'll bring them out of the nation of Israel, and we'll bring, oh, Oh, that's not so great either. But then, okay, there's a, a new king that's coming, and, and Saul's, oh, not so great. But then David, oh, he's amazing. And then, not so great. And then Solomon, and then Solomon's sons come, and then the kingdom has a civil war, and there's the northern kingdom of the ten tribes and the southern kingdom, and then there's prophets that are sent over and over and over to the people saying, hey, wake up, start living by what God has revealed, and they're like, yeah, we're all about it, and about 30 seconds later, <laughs> they're worshiping Baal, or they're doing stuff like that. I'm just reading through Jeremiah, and right? Jeremiah's, for years, said, okay, Jerusalem's gonna fall. The leaders said, nah, Jerusalem's never gonna fall. The temple's here, we're the Jews. And then Jerusalem finally falls, and then there's just a remnant left. Most people are in exile in Babylon, and the remnant's there. And, you know, some stuff happens, and Jeremiah's like, well, just stay here. And they're like, no, we're going down to Egypt. And Jeremiah's like, no, just stay here. And they said, Jeremiah, whatever you say, we're going to listen to you, right? And then Jeremiah says, stay here. And then they're like, no, we're not staying here. We're going down to Egypt. And it's like, you look at this, and then finally some people come back to the land, but the new temple's not near as good as the old one, and it's just kind of an anticlimactic thing. And then at the time of Jesus the Jewish people are under the thumb of the Romans. So much so that even though they were in their land, many Jews at that time said, we're still in exile. So you have this, this history that is just not so beautiful and it's almost, what's God gonna do? Why are all these promises not coming true? And then in the midst of this, Matthew says, this is the book of the genealogy or the genesis of Jesus, the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the son of David. All right, he's here. This new being, this, this amazing God-man is on the scene. Take note of this, people. And another really interesting thing in the genealogy, you see all this emphasis on him being the son of of David, As I mentioned before, King David is the only one mentioned as a king in here. After the genealogy is over, it says in verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So Matthew has split up this genealogy into three groups of 14. And if you read through this genealogy and you look at other Old Testament genealogies, you realize, man, there's not just 14 generations in a lot of these. There's at least five kings that are left off in some of these lists. And sometimes they're like, oh, this is, this is just an error in Scripture. Well, if you read in Scripture the father of, it can mean the forefather of or the ancestor of in genealogies. So I think what Matthew's doing here is there, there's something significant going on and why I've grouped these into three groups of 14. And I think there's two possibilities for this. One, um, like Roman numerals, all Hebrew letters had a numerical value associated with them. And David, the name David, the first is 
four, the second is six, and the other D at the end is four. There's no consonants in Hebrew, so David adds up in Hebrew to 14. So that's one possibility that Matthew is saying, okay, I want you to be focused on David and Jesus being the son of David, so I'm going to split it up into 14s. The other possibility is that 14 is what? Two times seven. Seven is that number of completeness in Scripture, basically. So what we have here, Matthew is saying, is six groups of seven. But now the seventh seven has come. That perfection, that completion is here. So I think either of those are a possibility. But I think you've got to think through this because Matthew is doing something significant in how he's organized this genealogy. It's not just random. It's like, wow, look at that. 14 in the first group, 14 in the center group, and 14 in the third. No, he's like, okay, I'm going to arrange this so it's 14, 14, 14. And I see those as the two main possibilities of what Matthew is doing here. You recognize as you read scripture that the authors are, though they're speaking history, they're trying to communicate theological truth through that history, right? And they're not often as concerned with what we think of as modern history. It's like, this isn't in chronological order. And they're like, yeah, so what? (laughs) Nobody, they're writing to their people and they recognize, okay, we're not writing like a 21st century historian writes. We're writing like people understood history was written at that time. And so sometimes things are moved out of order and for them it wouldn't mean, well, that's false. It's just like, okay, there's a purpose that he's moved this here. Or there's a reason that these things are arranged so that we can think a little bit about theologically why Matthew is doing this. And I think here it's either, I want you to focus on that recognition that Jesus is the son of David. He is great David's greater son. This is the one that all our hopes were on and then the whole kind of royal line just fell apart after Solomon wasn't great, though the kingdom was still together and he got to Rehoboam. Then it just, it all fell apart. But now we have this hope. So I think at the beginning of this gospel, Matthew's saying, I want you to have hope. You look around and you see what's going on and you see you being oppressed by the Romans and Matthew even was part of that and he's saying, I want you to have hope. There's someone that's on the scene that is someone new. This is a new genesis, but it's also someone that's rooted into the past of our people. He's tied into the history of our people. He's actually the goal, the completion. He's the David to come. He's the seventh seven that is here to complete things. There's also something really interesting in this genealogy. It includes four women, four mothers. All right, you're writing a genealogy of the Jews. What mothers are you going to include, right? Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebecca, right? But they're not included. We get Tamar in verse 3. She was a Canaanite, right? And if you know that whole thing, she pretended to be a prostitute, had sex with her father-in-law so she'd have a son. Not the most upstanding citizen that you would want included in the genealogy. And then there's Rahab, right? The woman in Jericho who was probably a brothel owner there and was a prostitute, the New Testament says. She's included as well. She's a Canaanite, okay? And then we have Ruth. Ruth was a Moabitess. The product of, again, an incestuous relationship, though Ruth was, of these women, probably the one that 
There wasn't any sexual stain on her life, though that's debated in the whole thing where they're out in the field. But anyhow, it doesn't seem like she's presented as a sexual sinner in Scripture, but she was also outside of the people of God. And then there's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. doesn't even mention her name in here. It says Bathsheba. And there's debate on whether Bathsheba was a Jew or a Hittite, but she was clearly married to a Hittite. So what connects all these women together that Matthew puts in this genealogy? They're all probably from outside the bounds of Israel. They're not of the seed of Abraham Yet God includes them, and I think this is Matthew's way of foreshadowing what's going to come in his gospel, that yes, this is a gospel for the Jews first and foremost, but you know what? Gentiles are included that as well, and we'll see that more and more as we go through the gospel. So you read this genealogy, and you're like, oh gosh, we're starting out with the genealogy of the Father. But to me, there's a lot of stuff that Matthew includes in how he's organized this, who he's included in this, that's really important and really significant as we dive in and recognize, you know what? This Jesus that's come to save, it's not just his people being the Jews, because if you look at who his people were, they included Gentiles as well and often Gentiles that didn't have the most sterling reputation. That God's grace extends to those outside of this genetic family of the Jews. So that's, to me, just a beautiful picture of what Matthew is doing. And I also think it's evidence for the authenticity of this stuff. There were a lot of stories in ancient days of, you know, a God and a person that you know, connected sexually, and then demigods were produced in that. And it's, it was always a very sexual thing in that way. And to me, if you're trying to set up Jesus' pedigree as this incredible demigod that's on the scene now, you're not going to include a lot of these people here. It's like you wouldn't include women in the genealogy, and certainly not these type of women, right? So if Matthew's just kind of pulling this out of his air, the, full, um, out of his head into, from thin air, making this statement, it's like, okay, I want people to believe that this is not really a brilliant way to start things, right? And so he starts, and to me, again, this is just evidence of God's grace and work in the life of his people, that there's a new genesis on the scene. There's a new human that's being created, and that human is tied into this whole history of the Jews, but it's new, but it's also old. There's a treasure that's coming out that's new as well as old. So that's the genealogy. Then we get down to verse 18. The genesis or the origin of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a man, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from all their sins. And this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name 
Jesus. All right, again, I want you to kind of put yourself, imagine being in the situation of this young couple back then. In this culture, um, Mary's from Nazareth, Joseph's from Nazareth, okay, from archaeological investigations, Nazareth at this time was probably a town of about 500 people, right? This is podunk, podunk. This is out in literally the sticks, you know? When Nathaniel hears that Jesus is from Nazareth, he's like, God, does anything good come from Nazareth? It's like, this is stick land, right? And and this is where this, this young couple is. And if you know kind of cultural, how marriages happened back in that day, it wasn't like Joseph looked across and said, oh, Mary, she's just really cute. She's really hot. I want to be. No, it's the parents probably got together when Joseph was maybe 13, Mary was maybe 10, and said, hey, you know, how about our families coming together and these two will come together in marriage. And so then probably in mid-teens, they finalize that contract. There's a bride price that is paid. It's formal, right? At the engagement, they get together. And, you know, then about a year later, after that formal kind of public engagement, then usually the the husband-to-be would go back off and build on to the, the dad's house a new room or two for his new bride. To me, that gives us the picture when Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. He's the groom that's coming back to get his bride in a place that he's prepared for us. So that's typically what happened. And so you're in a town of 500. Everybody knows everybody, right? Any of you lived in a really small town, right? When something happens, you know, it's faster than the internet, the way that that thing spreads, and all of a sudden, Joseph is married or is engaged to this woman, and we're not sure exactly how he finds out, but all of a sudden, Mary is pregnant. And then she goes to Joseph and says, Yeah, I know I'm pregnant, but it's by the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and oftentimes we think, Oh, the ancient people, they weren't that smart about this. Yeah, they were very smart about this stuff, right? What did Joseph realize? Like, mm, that did not happen by the Holy Spirit. There's absolutely no way something fishy went on here. And so he's in a predicament right now. And a marriage contract in our culture needs to end in divorce, but if you just call off an engagement, nothing formal has to happen. But in this culture, the contract was already there at engagement, so many of your translations, he would say he's trying to divorce her quietly. So there's two ways you could end this engagement contract. One would be publicly before the whole town, and if that happened, usually the bride price would be repaid to Joseph, but you could also do this according to the Mishnah quietly with just a couple witnesses. And often if that took place, you didn't get the bride price returned. So Joseph, when he hears from an angel, he's convinced not because of Mary's words, but because God intervened through a dream saying, yeah, this is really what went on he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to marry this woman. The Gospel of Luke lets us know that when Mary found out this, she went quickly to see Elizabeth. Elizabeth was pregnant kind of miraculously with John the Baptist, right? And so she lives out in another town, and Mary was there three months, okay? So Mary is up there three months. When she goes to see Elizabeth, it says the baby leaps for joy in her womb. So I don't know when you can start feeling babies, but she's out there with Elizabeth. Then she comes back to Nazareth. She's got a baby bump at this point in time. Imagine the reaction of people in Nazareth to this young couple. 
And when Joseph goes to his buddies and says, no, no, she's, she's pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And they're like, yeah. So he either looks like, okay, he's been, you know, not upright and sleeping with his fiance before marriage, or somebody else has slept with him and he's kind of cuckolded, but he's still going to marry this woman. It looks bad for him. And for Mary, you can't imagine the looks that she would get as well. Yet they were righteous and just, and despite the social scorn in Luke's gospel, it says, may it be to me as the Lord has revealed. In Matthew, we get more of Joseph's reaction. In Luke, we get more of Mary's reaction. But here, Joseph, he's, I'm, I'm done. And he's a just man, so I don't want to shame her publicly, but this, I'm not going to get married to this person. And the only thing that convinced him was this visit by the angel. And that's when it gets really interesting. Verse 21, he says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The angel's talking to Joseph, and he says, When this child is born, that's conceived of the Holy Spirit, that's in Mary's womb right now, I want you to call him Jesus. Now, Jesus, at this time, Yeshua, it's from you know, Yehoshua, which means Yahweh saves. And through the years, it got shortened to Yeshua. And so when you read in here, it's Jesus or Yeshua, it's Yehoshua. Yahweh saves. So here, imagine Joseph. He says, okay, you shall call his name Yahweh saves, for he will save. Do you see what Matthew's doing? Is it Yahweh that's going to save or Yahweh saves that's going to save? He's forcing his readers to think, okay, who, who is this, this child? He's named Yahweh saves, but right here it says he will save his people from their sins. So who is saving? Is it Yahweh or is it Yahweh saves saving? And Matthew would say yes. Right? And it's the same, you know, the word was with God and the word was God. Matthew's not as direct in how he gets that point across, but he is communicating that. And even more so when we get into verse 23, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. So is it Yahweh saves or God with us? Yes. Right? So Matthew is forcing us to look at who is this child? This is a new beginning. This is new humanity. This is something that's totally different, but yet totally connected through this genealogy. And what is he going to save them from? What were people at that time wanting the son of David to do? Because that term was loaded with expectations, right? When the son of David comes, right? He's going to come in and he's going to kick butt. He's going to kick these Romans out of here. Israel will then receive the glory that we had in the glory days of David where everybody was amazed at the power of Israel. And that's what's going to happen, right? And it says he's going to save his people from their sins. It's like, no, we, from Rome, from the powers that be that are dominating us. No, he says he's going to save the people from their sins. And I don't think that probably played really well in that day and age either, as much as it plays well in our day and age. 
You know, we hear sin and most people are willing to acknowledge, hey, you know, we're a little messed up. You know, look at the world around us today. It's pretty screwed up. But, you know, I'm better than average, okay? And there's nothing that a, a little bit of therapy and, and some time can't cure in me. And what Matthew is communicating here is that this child, this incredible union of God and humanity is here to save us from our sins because there needs to be something outside of us that saves us from the problem that's inside of us. And we as people always want to point to the problem outside of us. That's the problem, right? If there was just no more whatever it is, then I would be a really good person. It's the person, and it goes all the way back to the beginning, right? All the way back to Adam. Ah, it's not my problem. It's the woman you gave me. It's your fault, God. It's not my problem. It's the systemic racism that exists. Yeah, that is a problem. It's the economic conditions that we live in. I didn't have as many opportunities as others. It's the family of origin that I have. It's, 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 and we always look outside of us. And I'm not negating any of that. That has a huge impact on us. But I think what Matthew is saying here is that the primary problem is the problem within. It's the problem of our sin, of our hearts that are away from God. And he says, this child, this Yahweh saves is going to save us from our sin. I don't know this morning where you are, but if you recognize that that's even a problem. Some of us in here recognize, oh, yep, that's pretty evident. <laughs> Almost every time I get up in the morning, I see that. Well, there's like, eh, no, I'm pretty good. I'm better than most. And I'm sure the Jews at that time too were thinking, hey, we're God's people. If anybody needs saving from the sins, it's the stinking Romans that are, you, have you seen their culture, what they do? It's not us. We're the Jews, right? And some people got it. Some people that went out to see John the Baptist repented of their sins and recognized that, but the leaders that went out there, it's like, we don't need this stuff, we're Jews. We've got the scripture, we're sons of Abraham. And Jesus who is also a son of Abraham and a son of David, has come to save his people from their sins. Who are his people? In context, it probably refers to that genealogy before. But we recognize as we get through the gospel that his people is much broader than just the Jewish people. And we even get hints in this genealogy with these Gentile women that are included that his people is pretty broad and not typically what a Jew would think. God's just for us. We're the right people. It's the people out there that need, pro need work, right? They need forgiveness for their sins. And so often that infects the church, right? It's, it's really easy to point at the world out there and say, look how screwed up the world is. And then I say, you're pointing one finger out, one, two, three, four fingers are pointing back at you. And we often think, oh, it's what's outside. What did Jesus say? It's not the food you eat. It goes through you, ends up in the sewer. But the real sewer is oftentimes found in your own heart. And it's the stuff that comes out of you that indicates the position of your heart. And Matthew says, you know what? All of us don't have a heart that's really pretty. But this one, this new beginning, this one that's tied in to the old has come to save his people from their sins. 
The word save means to rescue or to redeem or to heal. All those ideas are in this word save. And we see that, that there's forgiveness for our sins when we come to Christ, but also there's that healing process that as God begins to work in us, he begins to eliminate those sins in our lives, not because we're all that, but because of the gracious work of God through this process of our becoming more like Jesus Christ. And so Jesus has come not only to save us from the penalty of our sins, but from the power of our sins, and then ultimately in the future, even from the presence of sin itself. One day I will be in the presence of my Lord with a new body that doesn't get up any any morning or every morning and think, hmm, I'd like that. And God says, no, that's not, I I guess I, I like what God likes. And there will be harmony and perfection. That's what I long for, and that's why Jesus was sent into the world. It's not something that we can generate from within. And as you look at the world out there, and as you look at what's going on, usually when people are doing things that we would classify as evil, they probably think they're good. Take Afghanistan now. The Taliban going into, do they think they're, we're out here to do evil? No, we're here to bring the reign of Allah into this place, and the Western nasty culture is really bad, and we need to bring this in here. The problem is how we define good. And as human beings, we want to be the ones that define what's good and bad, right? Three of the knowledge of good and evil. I want to define what is good and what is bad. I don't want to bow the knee to the God that has defined that and live under his authority and rule. And all of us have wanted to do that. But what Matthew starts out with this amazing story is that God has enfleshed himself by the Holy Spirit in Mary. This Jesus, Yahweh saves, has come and he will save his people from their sins. He's come to fulfill the promises of the Old Testament and we'll begin to look at that next week. There's three or four of these passages and we'll look at what Matthew means by fulfill. It's somewhat different oftentimes than what we think of fulfillment in terms of a Nostradamus type prophecy. But we'll look at that. But he takes us back to the book of Isaiah, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and we shall name him Emmanuel. If you look at that in the context in Isaiah, it was the time of Ahaz, right? And the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel was coming against Ahaz and they'd made an alliance with the king of Syria and they were gonna come to take out Jerusalem and Ahaz was really nervous. So Isaiah goes to Ahaz and say, basically God's got this, ask the Lord for a promise. And Ahaz asks, I would never test the Lord. And then... Isaiah says, you should probably do that, but I'm going to give you the promise. There's going to be a child born to a virgin. And by the time that child is just a young lad, not knowing his right from his left, the people that you're worried about are not even going to be a problem. And that was in 745. And in 742, the king of Assyria came, wiped out the northern kingdom, and took out the king of Syria. And if you read Isaiah, you're like, where is this child? We're not really sure who this child was, but there seems to be an immediate fulfillment because this was a promise that was made to Ahaz. Now, Isaiah has a son, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. How'd you like that name to carry around in life, right? And possibly that was the immediate fulfillment because the word virgin, Alma, in the Old Testament can refer to a virgin, but it also can refer to a young woman. The way that the 
Septuagint, or the Greek translations, translates that word as parthenos, which is definitely virgin. So the Hebrew scholars that translated thought that was a virgin. But in the Old Testament, it could have been a young woman. So whether that was fulfilled with Isaiah's son, maybe, maybe not, because it says by the time he wasn't old enough to recognize right and wrong, these two northern kings had fallen. So either that was the son or this is something future to come. But it's interesting if you read through that whole section of Isaiah 7 to 11, there's the promise in Isaiah 9, right, of this child born to us, this son given to us. And the government, right, another Christmas is going to be on his shoulders. And he will be called, what? Wonderful counselor. Mighty God. Put that in your pipe and try to get a hold of it. This child is going to be called Mighty God. Gibor Elohim, the mighty God. And it's, it's that, what in the world? This is, is there something bigger than just the child born here? And then Matthew picks up on that and says, you know what? This is a fulfillment of that prophecy. What that pointed to, even if there was a mil- immediate fulfillment, there was a greater fulfillment to come. And that was this child that was born to save his people from their sins. And he was mighty God. Yahweh saves. He will save. God with us. Again, to me, this is an astounding story, but it's one of those stories we're so familiar with that it just doesn't impact us that much anymore. That the God that created the entire universe with a word entered into the womb of a teenage mother. And he was the exact representation of the Father. So to me, this text lets us know that there's no amount of social engineering, no amount of therapy, no amount of stuff that we can do in ourselves that will solve our ultimate problem. And that problem is sin. And if we look over the last century, it's like, well, communism is going to be the solution. Yeah, that didn't really work out well for millions and millions and millions of people that were killed under those regimes. And every time we tried to build a utopia on our own, it just seems to fall flat on its face. But what Matthew is saying is there is one that has come to bring hope into the midst of this world. He's a new Genesis, a new creation, but he's tied in with the old and he has come to save us from our sins, the root problem. The root problem. We look out and we see uh, the problem's war, the problem's this, the problem's that, but the root problem is in every individual heart. And as God works on our hearts one at a time, then his kingdom can come and his will will be done. But I think it's really naive to look at the world and say all we need is just a little better educational system or a little bit more in terms of economic resources or a little bit more in terms of this or that. No, what we need is someone that will save us from that tendency of all of us to only think about ourselves, to put ourselves on the throne and say, you know what, I'm going to be the one that determines what's right and wrong around here. And this offer of forgiveness is available to all of us. That God, despite that tendency, wanted to be a God that was near, a God with us. He didn't push us away. He didn't say, okay, I'm done with this project. We'll start with a new world. He entered into the brokenness of our world to be with us, to save us from our sins, to extend that grace, yes, to his people, but we can see even here that his people is all of us. He is God 
with us. Turn to the last page of the book of Matthew, Matthew 28. The last word, this is Jesus speaking. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Who's with us, Jesus or God? Yes, you got it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you were willing to send your son, Lord Jesus. We praise you that you were willing to humble yourself, taking on the form of a human being, entering into the brokenness of this world. We know that you have come because of what you have done in our hearts and in our lives. So Lord, thank you that you wanted to be a God with us, that you didn't reject us despite our sin, despite our wanting to run our own lives. But Lord, you have come on a divine rescue mission. You want us to be part of your family. You want us to be with you forever. And the promise is there that you'll be with us to the very end of this age or of our lives, whichever comes first. So Lord, thank you for your grace and your love. Thank you that you're a God that works with all of us in all our brokenness. As we look at the history of Israel, you never gave up and you promised to bring your Redeemer and he came to bring rescue. So Lord, help us to cling to him. If there's anyone here that really hasn't acknowledged the reality of their sin, that they really do need saving, and it's not from a situation external to them, but it's from their own heart. Thank you for your promise that in the new covenant you will rearrange our hearts. You'll bring new life and new birth to us because we need, Lord, a Genesis as well. Your word says that we were dead in our sins and trespasses, but you make us alive through Jesus Christ when we trust in him. So thank you that newness is available to everyone who will acknowledge you as their Lord and Savior and admit their need for you and their sin. So Lord, I just pray that you'd work on any heart here that doesn't know that as a genuine reality. And Lord, for those of us who do know you, help us to walk in this world as your ambassadors, astounded by the amount of love that you have showered on us, not with a self-righteous or haughty attitude that we're better than everybody else, but we have been rescued by Yahweh saves. He has rescued us from our sins and he has come by his spirit to reside in us, to change us from the inside out. Lord, thanks for your love. Help us to walk in it. Help us to stand in your grace. Thank you, Jesus, for who you are and for revealing the Father God to us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.